Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey everyone, Jason here. Today's guest is Austin Whitman, the executive director of Climate Neutral. Climate Neutral is an independent nonprofit that is working to accelerate the transition to a low carbon world by putting a price on carbon emissions. They aim to make this process simple, actionable, and as credible as possible. Their four-step process enables brands to measure their footprint, identify opportunities to reduce, purchase offsets for unreduced emissions, and finally, market their commitment to climate action to consumers through the use of the certified neutral label. Austin is a great guest because his nonprofit's only a few months old, and he had grown up professionally working in energy companies in roles of increasing responsibility, and finally decided to put decarbonization more front and center and do something to more urgently address the climate fight. We covered a number of things in this episode, including Austin's experience that led him up to starting Climate Neutral. We talked about Climate Neutral's mission and vision, as well as where they are today on the journey. We talked about the process of starting something new in this space, which, as I've experienced, is super hard. And we also talked about a general discussion around climate change and what types of things can be most impactful, and most importantly, what advice Austin has for other people looking to follow down a similar path. I thought Austin was a great guest, and I hope you do as well. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. I'm glad you're here. You're a few months into a new adventure, it sounds like. Indeed. It's coming up on four months into a new adventure, running an organization called Climate Neutral. And it was a interesting outgrowth of a conversation I started having with a couple guys last November about ways to make bigger impacts on climate and looking forward to talking about it. Awesome. Yeah. And I think your your story is particularly relevant because, I mean, you've worked in energy for a long time, but you took the leap a few months ago to do something that was more squarely focused on climate change. And you also chose the non profit route. And so I think there's a bunch to dig into there in terms of your motivations and learnings and what was scary and what was intuitive and, and all that, because a bunch of our listeners are, you know, are in various stages of thinking through similar types of things. And a lot of them, like me, you know, didn't really know where to start coming in and are just trying to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. And it felt in a way for me like back to the future because I, I was working on something similar 2005, 2006, and then took a long hiatus where I was working more in traditional energy and then came back to this and would love to kind of explore some of the reasons I did that. But I think, you know, one of the, when we started talking, one of the interesting things that I heard from you was, you know, that this is about kind of mobilizing large numbers of people to think about how they can have their own impact on climate. And, and something that I've encountered even just in the last four months is just inbound phone calls to a degree I've never had before. People saying, you know what? I've been doing this thing for 10 years or 15 years, and I really just want to take what I'm good at and turn it into something that's really going to have an impact on climate change. And so I guess you know my, my point there is I think there are a lot of people out there having their own journey toward 
climate work. So I love what you're doing with the podcast because it's allowing those people to hear from those of us who've done our own changes and learn from that, get inspired, hopefully. Well, thanks. You're a part of the journey as well. So what is Climate Neutral? Climate Neutral is a nonprofit organization that has one main goal, which is to create a label that customers can look at on a product and understand that the brand that created that product has gone through the steps of measuring its entire carbon footprint from supply chain all the way to the point where their customer gets a hold of their product and identified some concrete ways to reduce their carbon footprint and then offset the entirety of the of what's left. So we are creating a simple methodology for companies to measure their footprint and then document their reduction efforts and then a label that says we've offset the whole kit and caboodle from from supply chain all the way down to the customer. It's like the the carbon equivalent of fair trade coffee. Totally. There are people will there are I think 436 eco labels or something in the official eco label directory, but only a ha small handful of those are actually recognizable, but right, fair trade, USDA organic. People respond very well to visual cues of information. I think what we've learned in the you know, the effort to kind of educate people is that simplicity is king and if you can boil a lot of complex work down into a very recognizable and simple picture in this case or logo then you can convey a lot of information very quickly and give people the opportunity to make a binary choice do i support and like what this brand has done or do i not and if you look at the overall landscape of brands what percentage of them would you say is carbon neutral today by our definition a fraction of 1%. Because if you, let's look at Earth Day this year. There were 10 major corporations and who knows how many small companies that made announcements about carbon neutrality. But let me ask you, what does carbon neutrality mean? I mean, I think if I, if I have to answer that, I mean, it, it's that the, the amount that I'm emitting minus the amount that I'm offsetting equals zero or below. Correct. But there are a lot of assumptions in sort of what are you emitting? What do you count? You know, do you count, if you're a company, do you count just the emissions from your fac biggest factory or your biggest office building? What exactly are you counting on that left side of the, the equation? What steps are you taking to subtract so that the right side of the equation is zero? So getting back to your question, lots of companies have made carbon neutrality announcements and countries are actually looking now at net zero or net zero carbon legislation which would set goals out over the longer term of being being net zero but it's very poor it's still the wild west out there it's very poorly defined as to what carbon neutral is and companies are making big bold claims unfortunately about being carbon neutral when all that might mean is they bought some renewable energy to power you know one of their data centers are there any standards that exist today in terms of what types of things need to be tracked? And is there any auditing process as well? There are a handful of labels out there. One group of them is run by consulting firms. And in our view, they are somewhat effective, but they haven't been heavily marketed. Consumer, What's it called, the, the group? 
There's a group called Natural Capital Partners, fantastic consulting firm out of Europe. They've uh -huh. got their own carbon neutrality standard, but it's kind of, you know, there's some versions of it that are product level, some versions that are brand level. There's a lot of there's a lot of nuance to the label and the label hasn't achieved consumer recognition at the level that we think is is necessary. Mm -hmm. The UN has a program called Climate Neutral Now. There are a lot of companies that have signed up for it, but ultimately you print out a PDF, you sign your name on a paper and you email it back and that's that's the extent of the pledge. It's not really time bound, immediate. It's like the people that like the New Year's resolution on Facebook that says, I'm gonna lose a hundred pounds this year. And we all know how long those resolutions last, which is not very long, right? How often do you go to the gym after you buy the membership? You know, how many times in January is probably the right answer. <laughs> and then once February rolls around, people are off the off the wagon. So, yeah, I mean, so there are labels, there are programs, not to say they haven't made an impact, but they are not complete in the sense of looking at the entire corporate footprint. And you use the term audited, which is probably the right word, but in, in many cases, nobody is actually requiring or checking to see if those companies are actually doing what they say they would do and actually achieving the emission reductions that are needed. There's another piece of this too, which is immediacy of impact, right? There's a large and very successful coalition of companies. It's called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Companies are signing up for this and creating quantitative reduction goals for how much they're going to reduce their own footprint. This would be like if you were to say, January 1, I'm going to lose 10 pounds over the next eight months. Although in the, in the science-based initiative case, it's more like I'm going to reduce 20% over the next 30 years. So they tend to be long reduction goals. And it's, it's a meaningful effort, but You've read stuff on climate. A lot of people have now been told, you know, the next 10, 12 years is really critical for climate change. And the impact of those reduction ef efforts is going to be longer term. And we need something that's more immediate. And so what we're looking to do is build this platform that will actually get companies investing in carbon reductions that happen today while they work on a longer term strategy of reducing emissions within their own corporate footprint. I know there's a lot baked in there, but that's sort of the, you know, the way these pieces, different pieces fit together. So are you basically saying it's going to take time to get all my processes and reductions and efficiencies, et cetera, so we're going to help these brands just offset a crap load of emissions in the short term? I mean, is, that, is that what you're doing? That's, that's exactly right. I don't think we use the word crap load on the website, but, you know, it's, it's the right sentiment. Well, if you, need any, we if you need any copywriting help, I mean, I, I, I'm looking for some freelance work. I hear you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Podcasting doesn't pay very well. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put a tip in the tip jar on the way out. <laughs> but no, that's, that's exactly it, right? I mean, when we hear from companies, you know, we can't, we're not going to do this because we're, we've got our own reduction plans. And then you've got to, when you hear that, you've got to, you've got to push back and say, well, okay, what's the timeline and how extensive? And if you really press for details, you know, you'll find, especially with small and medium-sized companies, that they have not figured out how to reduce any more than, you know, 5 10% of their emissions, which is just not the kind of cut that's going to make a difference. But what's the pitch? I mean, is the, is the pitch like, hey, I have a way that you can pay more and it can impact your profitability in the short term, and in return, you get this shiny sticker? That's the cynical pitch. The hopefully less cynical pitch is 
companies out there are profiting heavily from unrestricted carbon pollution, which has quantifiable damages on humanity, right? The entire planet. And as long as that's allowed to continue, we're gonna we're essentially doing nothing to fix the climate problem. We're nibbling around the edges with you know policy changes and with some of these efforts that I mentioned earlier. But you can make the moral case, you can make the economic case, you can make the you know personal accountability case, but it is fundamentally wrong for companies to be allowed to profit from unchecked emissions. And there are market mechanisms out there today that can allow companies to rectify that for a surprisingly low cost. So the initial work that we've done ballparks, at least at today's market prices for carbon offsets, ballparks the average reduction cost at around 0.3 or 0.4% of revenues, which is not a huge number, especially when you look at the $2 trillion of profits that companies actually generate. So it's something that needs to happen. Governments are working on their own carbon pricing policies, which will take a long time to, to bite and take hold. And companies need to realize that this is a new way of doing business. Another way of thinking about it is sustainability claims have done tremendous things for for the business of companies who are investing in sustainability, but they're very inconsistent and often meaningless. And this commitment from companies to look at their carbon pollution and invest to clean it up should be considered the absolute bare minimum for any company that is thinking about sustainability. So what is the pitch, right? I I still don't have a good sense. You made the pitch for why it's good for the world, but what is the pitch to the the brand? Right. There's another piece of what your cynical pitch had, which is you get this shiny label. Yes, that is part of the pitch, right? We're purveying a label that companies can put on their products and on their hang tags. And that will show their customers that they are taking steps. And the more the more we understand sort of how people are thinking about climate change, people by people I mean consumers, the more it becomes clear that consumers are rewarding companies who are doing stuff to to address their footprint. So there's commercial benefit to companies who are doing this. I mean, here's another, I guess, cynical angle. And I'm I'm not saying that because I'm necessarily cynical. I'm I'm saying it to pressure test what you're trying to do. So if you take food, for example, right, there you see labels, and one of the labels you see is fat-free, right? And when you see fat-free, consumers gobble it up because they say, oh, fat-free, so I can eat as much of it as I want. But the reality is that there's a bunch of, there could be chemicals, there could be preservatives, there could be sugar, there could be different things that may not technically be fat, but aren't good for you, right? And so if you kind of bring that analogy around, right, it's like, carbon neutral, right? Well, okay, carbon neutral, but like how high quality are the offsets? Are they really doing what they say they're doing? Or or is it just like essentially shifting paper around but continuing to emit just like I have been? Yeah. So how do you respond to that? I totally hear you on the fat-free cookie thing. I think, you know, it's and it's a great analogy. The Why well, thank you. The reality is that companies have very few options to short of just shutting down their business, right? Which would guarantee a zero footprint. They have very few options to do things in the near term. And 
you know, when when you look at where their emissions are, companies outsource much of their pollution, right, to places where they have factories in China and Vietnam. They outsource emissions to their employees who, you know, work from home or commute. A company's emission footprint is incredibly diverse. And yet we've had this this problem with the idea of a company paying somebody else to reduce emissions on their behalf. And this is one of the fundamental narratives that we're looking to change, is that we live in a globalized world and companies do push pollution out to other countries and to other companies. And it should be okay for them to pay to reduce emissions. Now, how do we know that they're actually reducing emissions, right? How do we know that there isn't you know, an adverse effect happening from a company buying a ton of carbon or, or worse, no effect at all. There are systems and there are entities called verifiers that spend their entire lives making sure that when you invest in a ton of carbon, that that ton of carbon is actually being avoided or sequestered. And are those verifiers the same verifiers across all the different types of offsets, or is it kind of vertical specific? Like, is a, is a reforestation offset a different verifier than a different kind of offset, a wind offset? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Every verifier has a multitude of project types, and not every verifier has the same exact project types that they'll verify. And this gets into the realm of probably more complicated than the average consumer will ever want to understand. So what we're doing is we're handpicking a small set of verifiers and a small set of project types from those verifiers and working with a group of third-party experts as an additional layer of scrutiny and saying the only credits that companies that have this label, this this, this shiny you know, sticker, the only credits that they're using as part of their offsetting strategy have passed through these multiple filters so that a consumer at the end of the day can say, yeah, I see that sticker and I know that what's behind that is is quality. So the brands that are declaring themselves carbon neutral today, are they being certified by anything or are they just declaring themselves carbon neutral today? Just declaring themselves carbon neutral today. I mean, do they get enough brand equity from that? You know, do they need, I guess, an extra certification or? They certainly get yeah. press. Uh-huh. I mean, you see large companies making big carbon neutrality announcements and they get a lot of press about it. If I was going to shank my earnings, I would just commit to being carbon neutral by 2030 and then, you know, and, and just tie that in to soften the blow. Yeah. Or there if, you go. Or if you were any, any one of any number of fossil fuel companies, you'd say 2070, 2080 is a reasonable time frame. And, you know, we're on the path. So rest easy. And the CEO says, I'm going to be long retired by then. What do I care? And That's someone so else's will my problem. successor and, and his or her <laughs> successor. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and, it's, and it's a successive process of kicking the can down the road. And, and part of you know, why I, we think this is striking a chord is that in the last couple of years, the, the dialogue has really changed. Like there's a level of urgency that I've never heard before. And it, and it comes down to maybe a better understanding of science. I think more people from different walks of life paying attention to climate. In a weird way, I think there's a, a backlash from the, you know, the current administration that you know more states and, and municipalities have have decided that they've got to do something because people are actually kind of you know well they, they know that the federal government's not doing anything and they're actually pretty pretty legitimately worried about things so should we thank donald trump for mobilizing people to take climate action you could i don't think you'd be wrong to do it so one question i have for you is you just launched recently and 
from talking to you before we started recording, it sounds like you've gotten quite a bit of early traction. Yeah. We, now, that wasn't a question, but no, that was a statement. That's an observation. Yeah. And I can react to <laughs> observations as well as questions. Um, so, so the statement- you have, a, you have a dry sense of humor that I appreciate. Good, good, good. Probably won't come through over the microphone, but- <laughs> But I feel you. You feel me. Yeah. And yes, I've been told that it's bone dry. It is what it is. It's there though. It's there. Yeah. Yes, we're, we're, doing, we're doing well. We have 20 brands committed- and brand, even brands that you would recognize. I'm drinking out of a clean canteen coffee mug here, which is one of the brands that's committed. Nice. I'm not wearing- I just left my clean canteen in an Uber last week. Uh, so, too bad. Yeah, if you can get me another one, I'm a poor podcaster. I probably could. Yeah, we did, a, we did a, an initial industry-facing launch. Not Evan. Don't get Evan. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> the guy behind the controls over there. Yeah, no, no, no beverages. We did, a, we did a, an industry-facing launch last week at the Outdoor Retailer Show in Denver. 30,000 people came to the show. We had a huge splash with logos all over the doors. So everybody who walked in the doors got hit with our, our logo. And then anybody who came to, to our- Did you pay for that? We did pay for that. Wow, yeah. look at you. Yeah. Brand new nonprofit well, sponsoring thank, thanks to big our, shows. Thanks to our generous seed funders, we were able to get that. And honestly, you know, I did a lot of groundwork in the months leading up to starting as executive director. And a lot of the feedback that I got boiled down to one thing, which is lots of people have tried to build coalitions in the past and, and mobilize groups. The key thing is to get critical mass early. And so my own sort of puritanical nature was in the dry sense of humor, right, was, was yeah, should we really spend that kind of money to, to do this. But you know, it's really important to just go out and go out hard and go out strong. You're an endurance athlete. It's not. It's the opposite of endurance, right? Which is just running really, really fast at the beginning and getting a head start. Because otherwise, you can spend a year or two sort of slowly ramping up and just find yourselves never getting off the ground. Lots of mixed metaphors there, but you get my point. So last week, we came out, big splash. We had the professional climber, Alex Honnold, Oscar winning from, you know, and also more important than the Oscar, he did an amazing athletic feat climbing, climbing El Capitan without ropes. He moderated the panel for us and was super into the idea. It's totally compatible with what his foundation is trying to do. So that, as you can imagine, drew a huge crowd. We came back from the show with literally hundreds of companies interested in what we're doing. So felt like that was a really strong culmination to the first four month period that we've had. And from here, just a lot of effort will go into recruiting additional companies and then eventually building out the awareness that people have of the brand so that when they see it on a clean canteen water bottle, they know what it means. So how many brands have signed up so far? 21. And what does that mean, sign up? What did they sign up for exactly? So they are signing a memorandum of understanding, a commitment to be certified for their 2019 year emissions. So we're doing this on an annual basis. And so every company that joins us in 2019 during the first quarter of 2020 will go through the process of measuring their emission footprint, creating a plan to reduce emissions in meaningful and immediately addressable ways, completing the purchase of offsets for the entirety of their footprint, and then they get certified and can use the label. Out of those 21, are, are there commonalities? Like where do you think this story is resonating the most in the in the brand world. There's a lot of different types of brands out there. Yeah. So is there are there themes that are emerging? 
Well, we've started off in the outdoor industry, although we have one company, a couple companies that are not from the outdoor industry. I think they're in general, you know, of course, you start with the low hanging fruit. These are companies who have sustainability programs, companies where their brand identity is heavily wrapped up in their understanding of their impact on the planet. And so they're the ones who've been the first to to jump into this. But, you know, there's going to be another wave and, and successive waves. We've heard a lot of great feedback from some of the larger tech companies who are just trying to figure out how to manage the many risks that they perceive in doing this as a large enterprise, how to justify it internally to their corporate finance teams and so forth. But getting back to your original kind of what's the commonality, generally they tend to be smaller companies. And by small, I mean, you know, 10 up to $150 million, but not multi-billion dollars. So they can move more quickly. They have people internally who are passionate about doing this. They have forward-looking marketing teams, and they've got some sort of planetary idealists in a way, right? I mean, some people who are really aware of the climate problem and see that their place in in the world is in part their position is going to be improved if they actually take action to do something as a company what's the role of the person that that ends up being the sponsor typically at these brands is it, i mean is it the ceo is it the head of sustainability great question yeah it's we've seen it all over the map we've met with ceos of large brands we've, we've we've gotten tremendous positive feedback from them we've also met with managers and and, and directors of sustainability and marketing Ultimately, you know, the question, of course, is where does it come from in the budget? And I think we're typically seeing marketing dollars, which maybe flow through a sustainability budget. But it's the marketers who who see this as a as a cost of creating the brand that they want to to show to customers. So is this your first foray into the nonprofit world? Directly, yeah. It's the first time I've run a nonprofit organization. I've consult as a consultant and then as an intern long time ago. I've worked with nonprofits before, and I think Mo, this this experience has been a a really fun one so far because it's made me rethink the role of nonprofits in some ways. And eight months ago, one of my colleagues in my last job said to me, you know, I ne- would never work for a nonprofit. And I think when people hear nonprofit, they think an entity that moves slowly and people kind of work like, you know, nine to four with two hour lunch breaks. And there's not really much in the way of deadlines and accountability and because there's no profit that they're driving toward. And None of that has to be true. And there are a lot of amazing nonprofits that are working totally like, you know, against what a typical sort of nonprofit stereotype would be. And so we're trying to build this like a tech startup, right? Building technology into the strategy, working quickly, you know, building aggressively and and investing heavily where we can. Was it a tough decision that this should be a nonprofit? How did you go about making that decision? And what was it that ultimately convinced you that nonprofit was the right path? Well, I'll say one thing, which is we haven't proven out that this thing can can survive as a nonprofit model. So all the high net worth listeners that you have, feel free to hit me up on email and you know, we're happy to take donations and that will help us prove out that the nonprofit model can work. But, you know, we didn't have much of a conversation about whether this should be a nonprofit because the goal of, of recruiting these companies is not to create a new business. There are plenty of businesses out there that charge companies on sustainability strategies and what have you. The goal here is to get companies investing in decarbonization. And so dollar additional dollars that companies budget, we want those dollars to go into decarbonization and not our profits. Got it. So you you realize that from a mission standpoint, you would be more credible and more helpful on the problem if you are funded through philanthropy versus being funded through your customers' wallets. That's right. Yeah, and I've been on you know the sales side 
of for-profit companies before and now this nonprofit venture. And I can tell you when I sit down across the table with a CEO or a director or even try to get a meeting, it's a very different type of conversation when you say, look, I'm not in this for my commercial interests. I'm in this because we have a mission that has a public purpose. And it doesn't feel like a sales conversation. It feels like more of a partnership from the beginning. And when you were just getting going and trying to figure out how to get that operating budget for year one, how did you think about funders in terms of, like, I have no nonprofit experience, but on the on the for-profit side in the startup world, it's like, oh, do we want individuals? Do we want funds? Do we want to go through an accelerator? Like, wh- what does that landscape look like in the nonprofit world, and how did you approach it? Yeah, so we've been lucky. I've been lucky in that this, in a sense, came pre-funded by two companies, a company called Peak Design and a company called Biolite, who, in essence, you know, went through their own journeys toward being carbon neutral and decided that their experience was frustrating and overly complicated and not accessible to the average company. And they had to work really hard to get where they had come so far. And both of them agreed to provide seed funding for the platform. And so we're now looking at other sources of funding ranging from traditional foundations that have funded environmental causes to more radical ideas like trying to crowdfund our budget. And typically in the nonprofit world, I mean, are, are nonprofits raising money for several years of runway or are they back to the till every year? Are they just constantly fundraising? How does it work? It's probably the exact same answer that you, you're used to in the for-profit startup world, right? Which is if you do it right, you get yourself two plus years of, of runway, but that's not the only way to do it. And you know, some people are very successful working off of annual fundraising or even you know quarterly fundraising campaigns. So it all depends on the model and, and, and what your what your donor base looks like. So for us, we would like we've, we've got some longer term projects in the hopper. We're we're trying to build a tech, piece of technology that will take really twelve months of funding to get it fully implemented. And so we're looking for money that will will fund that. We're also looking to devote as much of our time to building com- building brand awareness and building company interest in the platform, and that requires you know eighteen to twenty four months visibility into where funding is coming from. I don't want another. Let me say this a different way. I don't want to spend all my time just kind of flying around to uh, to, to, to fundraising meetings, but it may come to that. And I mean, you talked about phase one being the offsets because the offsets are here and now. What's the long vision for the impact that you're trying to have and how will that be staged? Yeah, nonprofits often talk about this notion of theory of change. What are the steps by which you're going to affect the kind of societal change that you're that you're driving toward in your mission? And our, our theory of change is that the the mechanism of a carbon offset really is just a carbon price. Call it an offset. Call it a carbon credit. It's a carbon price that a company is paying. In this case, it's it's paying it voluntarily. And in two or three years, we'll have a large enough group of companies that are voluntarily paying a carbon price that they'll be an economic powerhouse that demonstrates to policymakers that companies can handle a carbon price and they're paying it voluntarily. And consumers care about this because these companies have been rewarded for the work that they've done, the investments that they're making. And maybe it turns into a federally or regionally mandated carbon price. I think, you know, ultimately 
we all believe in the importance of government helping solve the climate problem because it's so complex, but that we can't waste time waiting for government and the companies can do a lot in the near term. So is one way this could go then that you're, you kind of bottoms up proving out that a carbon price can be beneficial and viable for companies and then ultimately shift more of your efforts into advocacy over time? Will we become a policy advocate? I don't know. Honestly, there's a lot, a lot of strings attached to that, both in terms of your tax status and you know, getting mobilizing your members to sort of one common policy position. And I've been involved in, in work like that in the past. Our view is that for the foreseeable future, the world will not have an ample price on carbon that's at scale with where the problem is. You know, so the World Bank does a great analysis every year of the state of, of carbon carbon pricing, and 15%-ish of emissions right now have a carbon price. 85%, therefore, don't. And we're not going to flip a switch and have the other 85% covered. So it'll be a while before there's a carbon price that governments are mandating. If the world has a suitable carbon price and companies feel, feel great about it, you know, maybe in five years or eight years, our mission is complete. Uh, personally, I, I don't see that happening. I think there are lots of other ways we could we could continue to engage businesses and raising the bar even higher, but we'll take it one day at a time. Was there anything in your past that was directly relevant to the work that you're doing now? So in 2005 or six, I started an effort in graduate school at the time to sell carbon credits to students who were taking trips abroad for spring break. And we went around, we educated. Was that a, f- a for-profit? <laughs> I made 10x. Yeah. Um, no, it was not for-profit. <laughs> we were essentially just trying to get a, a movement going. You've been a do-gooder for a while. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I just recently caught the bug. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, we, we did this out of the goodness of our heart, I suppose. But what we did was try to get try to get classmates to recognize that you know their trips to Japan and China for spring break, ostensibly for learning, but mostly to try the sake, were having an impact. And what, what does 50 people buying carbon offsets do? I mean, environmentally, not a, not a huge amount, but it, you know, it's, it's part, of, part of education. And so we did that a long time ago. And then I worked for a company for a couple of years that was doing investment more at a global level in carbon markets, carbon financing. And that was in the, the first, I've sort of looked back, like every decade has had its major wave of interest in addressing climate, like even going back to the 60s and 70s. And so the one, the major wave in the 2000, early 2000s was leading up to some potential legislation that was going to happen in the U.S., which never came together. But at the time, there were carbon financiers who were very interested in the U.S. market. So I worked for one of them investing in carbon projects and thinking about how those carbon projects could potentially be funded through U.S.-based uh, investment. So there's been some stuff on the periphery. It hasn't been front and center, but at least wet your whistle. And there, I imagine there's been a big learning curve, but enough of a foundation that the transition's gone okay. Is that, they get that right? I think you got it right. Yep. So what convinced you that this was an area that matters? This particular platform is attractive or has been attractive to me because you know, very few things feel more direct than getting people to pay more to fix climate change. You've talked to a lot of people so far in this podcast series, and you know, people depends who, how you look at it. I've talked to a lot, a lot I've of just important the surface, people, but I've just scratched the surface in terms of who I'd like to talk to. So your yeah, your your, your career has at least ten years to go to 
to get to start to scrape in the bottom of the depths. Actually, hopefully it's infinite, right? As more people jump into this movement. But sorry, what was your question? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the question was like, why does this area matter? Yeah, it matters because brands are incredibly powerful. And the interface between brands and consumers, you know, we live in a consumptive world and people buy stuff and people like to buy more and more stuff and companies like to make more and more stuff. And if we start to raise the level of expectation of consumers and get them to put pressure on companies and similarly have companies show their consumers that this is this is fine and this is part of doing business, that's really important. That's a really important interface. You know, for years and years, people have tried different educational approaches. I think this one in particular is is undersaturated. That's a word. So is it, is it more about the second and third order effects then than it is about the direct impact on emissions? Well, so that's what's interesting, right? Because if you look at people talking about carbon taxing, you know, carbon tax is one of the sort of top couple ways of pricing carbon. And people say carbon taxes can be effective because they get the people who are paying the tax to change their behavior. If I pay a tax as an individual, I start doing less of the activity that incurs that tax. I drive less or I replace my gas car with a with an electric car. And if I'm a company, if I pay that tax, I start to shift my business activities away from the high carbon activities to things that are lower carbon. What I think is fascinating about this particular platform is it actually works on both sides, right? Which is that there's that we're now we're talking about a tax on companies, which does change or will change their behavior internally, make them think differently about their carbon footprint. But on the other side of it, the money, the tax that they pay, if you will, the tax goes right into a decarbonization project. So if the government assesses you a tax on carbon, that revenue might go into balancing a state budget or you know, building a new destroyer, not decarbonization. And people say, well, it's really about the price signal and not about the revenue what the use of the revenue. In our case, the mechanism that we're we're trying to get brands to adopt does both, right? price signal for companies and decarbonization projects. So at some level, it's, it's a climate finance vehicle. It's a way of getting more investment into carbon reducing projects. And just to give well, you an like example- a, It's like a philanthropic, like a corporate philanthropic climate finance vehicle. A corporate philanthropic climate finance if, vehicle, yeah. Unless- people really believe that it's like their, I mean, I was going to say fiduciary responsibility, but it's not their fiduciary responsibility. It might be their ethical and moral responsibility. But it, it, you could argue it's their fiduciary responsibility not to do this. You could. And I think going back to the commercial, the, the commercial value of the brand impact is one. Certainly there are companies who recognize that there is climate risk out there to the economy. And that climate risk is changing the way that they make decisions. Mm -hmm. And then there's certainly people who say, you know, we already donate 1% of our revenues to environmental causes because we believe it's the right thing to do. We're going to continue to do that. So there's an interesting, I think, split that we're going to see between public and private companies, where public companies may have a harder time justifying this to shareholders, but private companies get into conversation with their boards and with their founders and, and their owners and have an easier time saying, yeah, this is just the right thing to do. This is what I need to do as a as a business owner. Well, and that, I mean, that's another whole topic for a different day is just what do we need to do in terms of public market reforms to properly factor in the, you know, taking care of the planet that that we all depend upon. So at least one Twitter question, so I want to pull that up. But while I'm doing that, if there's any brands out there that are interested in learning more about what you're doing, then what should they do? Where do they find you? They should check out our website, www.climateneutral.org. 
and we outline the process for getting certified. That's a very simple three-step process leading to the label. They should look at the page of brands that have already signed up, and they should use the Contact Us page to say that they're interested. Great. Well, there's two questions from Twitter. One is from Jake Douglas, at Jake Douglas is his handle, and he said he'd love to hear about any tips or best practices for anyone wanting to start internal discussions about this at their workplace. Yeah, great question, Jake. It depends, I guess, highly on what your role is and who you have relationships within with within your company. But if, if, you've, if you started a sustainability platform already at your company, or, or, or if there's one in place, this fits incredibly well into it because it starts to quantify the commitments that you're making as a company. And it allows you as a brand to say, you know what, other companies out there are greenwashing or they don't have meaningful targets. We're doing something that's that's meaningful. And, and when that something that's meaningful is communicated to customers, there will be commercial values, right? So there's a little bit of a business case behind that, which is understanding how your customers will respond to this kind of kind of label. Yeah, it almost I, felt like falls in the marketing group. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I think I think finding those people that you have relationships with within the marketing group and or sustainability teams and showing them what other companies have decided that this is an important thing to do. I mentioned, you know, 20 so far and we've got a growing list. And starting that conversation and we're happy to to provide, you know, some of the background thinking on why this is important for companies to undertake. But, you know, small movements begin with champions, with individuals, and big movements grow from from small movements. And so our our view is it doesn't matter what your role is within a company. You can be a CEO, you can be a sustainability intern. But if you, if you pose a question that people have to respond to, and that question sort of opens up a conversation with, with people about how you're approaching sustainability and how you're approaching climate risk, then you know, some productive things can happen. Last question from Twitter is from Nathaniel Stinnett at N-C-S-T-I-N-N, who was also a guest on the show a few episodes ago, and he said, ask him if he's still a better runner than me. We're, we were on the same cross-country team in high school. So We were indeed. I have tremendous admiration for what Nathaniel slash Nate has done with Environmental Voter Project. He's still Nathaniel to me. We're not quite on Nate terms well, yet. So you'll get there. Maybe go, another episode couple, and we'll, we'll get go there. Go for a couple runs. Yeah. I mean, he was a couple years ahead of me. Indeed, he was faster than me, but then I was faster than him. And I would say at this point, He's lost a lot of hair up top, which probably makes him more aerodynamic. So I'm guessing that he's probably faster than me at this point, based on aerodynamics alone. And last question. This is not from Twitter. This is just something I, uh, that I've been asking every guest, which is just to be at a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact on the climate fight. Where would it go? How would you allocate it? Yeah. Interesting question. I love the work that folks like the Connecticut Green Bank are doing. So I think I'd take part of that and I would capitalize more green banks. I've actually been very disappointed at the slow pace of adoption. There's a, a you know effort, a senator from, from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen, who tried a number of years ago to get a federal green bank going. Green banks are just tremendously creative and, and effective institutions. And, and Connecticut's kind of a leading example of that. So I'd take a chunk of that and I'd put it into just the financing infrastructure. Right, by capitalizing some green banks. I think the other place I would put some of it is is making cities more livable and more climate resilient because a lot of people live in cities of all income brackets 
And investments in cities are going to be critical for the economic future and health of the country. If cities continually get decimated, that's those are the economic powerhouses, right? That that must not happen. Plus, there's so many people who live in cities that rolling out things like, you know, new public transit and and even new educational programs focused on cities can be just a great way of letting people know that, you know, it's not all gloom and doom. This can actually improve your quality of life. And then I guess for a third bucket because everything nice comes in threes. Project Drawdown that that Paul Hawken has has run it, it, it's very interesting to see how they have identified the highest impact climate activities and I would look for a couple unlikely places to put to put money based on their list I tend to be a sort of a more analytical person and like to see like all right not just because I feel this thing is really important but because somebody has looked at the numbers and said you know if you invest in education of of women and, you know, and reproductive rights that can actually have a major impact on climate. And so I encourage anybody to kind of look at what Project Drawdown has come up with. They've just put a tremendous number of hours into the analysis. And I would look with a third bucket, I'd look into some unlikely, less likely or less obvious places on that list. And any parting words for listeners? Anything I didn't ask? Get involved. I mean, I think, you know, I, I've over the years, I've been asked a number of times, so how do I get an environmental job? You know, I want to work in the I want to work in in environmental business, and what I always say is there's really no such thing as environmental business. There are, there are businesses whose whose product may have some environmental benefit or cost, but fundamentally, anybody who does anything can incorporate climate considerations into what they're doing. And the world needs great marketers. The world needs great podcast hosts. The world needs you. Yes, they do. It does. Uh, the world needs great technicians and engineers. And anybody in any one of those roles that puts their climate hat on, climate change is such a wide-ranging and deep issue that anybody in any one of those roles can can think, all right, what am I what am I doing today and how could I make that a little bit more effective from a, from a climate perspective? And then at some point in your career, if you want to kind of jump over and start running a nonprofit, I mean, I can tell you the road to riches is smooth. (laughs) All right. Well, Austin, you've been a great guest. Best of luck with the new venture. I like it. I'm excited to see where it goes. And thank you for coming on the show. Well, it's been great and fun and good conversation. And thanks for the good, hard questions. And there's stuff that we will continue to wrestle with, but we feel like we're onto something. So hopeful that we'll get 500 companies on board in the next year and we'll be seen as one of the major impacting groups. And if not, I'll have this podcast to show on my track record. Exactly. Yep. You should get something for it. It's like the participation trophy right. of climate change. Congratulations, you finished something. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Austin. All right. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.